if you're, you know, I've, it's been a while since we've looked at these, but that little slide that I gave you on the warning passages uh, is where we are um, in chapter 10. And um, these are difficult, they really are, but my perspective remains that these warning passages are to believers. The issues that the author is bringing up is not about loss of salvation. It's about how these people are responding to the word of God and the dangers, the dangers of diminishing the importance of the word of God in your life. So if you look at this, and that's why I have a downward arrow, a downward spiral here kind of idea. But it began with, be careful that you don't drift from the word of God, that you don't doubt the word of God, that you don't become dull to the word of God. Now, this morning, we want to look and, and conclude the fourth of five uh, to uh, despise the Word of God. Now, in all cases, what the author does is he uses ancient Israel as an example. If you do this, this is what God does. And it is important to remember that with the children of Israel, God disciplined them. He didn't give them up. He disciplined them. They remained his people. So in these cases, what the author of Hebrews is doing, using the example of ancient Israel, he's saying, as God disciplined them, he will also discipline you. Take seriously his word. Take seriously the admonitions and, and, and uh, commands and exhortations in the word. Take it seriously. Uh, otherwise, you will fall into sin, and God will discipline you, just like ancient Israel. Now, those last three or four sentences, do they make sense to you? Mm -hmm. That is really important to have that perspective always. Because he uses these examples of it, uh, almost always, uses these examples of ancient Israel in, in horrible situations. So, if you're with me... <laughs> Let's pick up then, I'd like to look at verse 26, and that's where, because we talked about verses 19 through 25 last week, because he reviews, and we'll just quickly review that, he reviews, because of the finished work of Jesus, we have open access to God, which, as we have talked before, is a remarkable idea for a Jewish person in the first century. It remains a remarkable idea today in the 21st century. But it really was that because of the finished work of Christ, we have open access, we would put it 24-7 access to God. And he therefore just reminds them of that. Verse 25, or excuse me, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now that's a propositional statement. He's declaring something. And so let's, let's look at it, let's work backwards from it. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why would he say it that way? Well, remember, these are Jewish people. And throughout their life and their heritage of hundreds of years up to this point, the way in which God dealt with their sin was through sacrifices. The animals, the blood of bulls and goats. We've seen that phrase before. So he's saying there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. 
Again, because of that phrase we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, that once for all sacrifice. Now, given that, given that, he says, now you got to remember that. This once for all sacrifice for sins means it's dealt with. You follow me? It's dealt with. Because you have received the knowledge of, I'm working our ways back. I'm going backwards through the verse. You've received the knowledge of truth. You know this is true. Therefore, stop sinning deliberately. You see what he's doing? See his argument? Because this is true, and because you have received it, stop deliberately sinning. That's what he's arguing for them. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a free fury of fire will consume their, the adversaries. Now, that is hard language, but again, the language he's using is the language out of the Old Testament. That's how God dealt with people who despised his word. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? So, Old Testament, God would deal with a person who treated his word lightly and flippantly with judgment. Even not showing mercy if there were two or three witnesses. The old way in which God established truth and facts in the Israeli society. This side of the cross, this side of the cross, what do you think will happen to one who has spurned the Son of God? profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outraged the spirit of grace. Now, three statements that relate to this side of the cross. Not before the cross, verse 28, but now after the cross. So the way I put it, despising the word of God. To despise the word of God, you're spurning the Son, profaning the covenant, and outraging the spirit. You see, the three key aspects of your life now. You're treating the Son of God and his shed blood. You're spurning it. You're profaning it. How dare you do that? And to make it worse, you're outraging the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Is God concerned once we, once we, and using the phrase he used, once we receive the knowledge of truth, if we go on deliberately sinning and despising God's word. Yes! You're spurning the son, you're profaning the blood, and you are outraging the spirit. It's serious business. For you know, God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So he's using really strong language, but it matters to God how you live. As he disciplined Israel, who had a covenant relationship with him, he will discipline you who have a new covenant relationship with him. So it's the idea, it's really strong language, but it's the idea, it matters to God how you live. And to despise his word 
is serious business. Don't take it lightly. Uh, Fred. This is maintaining God's moral law from the old covenant all the way through the new covenant. That would be that would be one one important dimension of this. That's right. It's more than that in terms, of, but that that would be one of the key continuity issues between the old and the new. His moral law, i.e., the Ten Commandments, for example. Yeah, yeah, Fred. Uh, when, when Moses left uh, the children of Israel to go off and, and to get the Ten Commandments and so forth, uh, the children of Israel acted like children and infidels and created another God there. They were engaged in that frivolity. What um, is, is the constant re- dedicating or sacrificing a reminder that to the people that to stay in his will and not leave his will and his desire for their life and the laws that they were under at the time is that is that kind of one of the reasons for this repetitiveness as opposed to new testament where you come to christ redeemed can break fellowship but still you've got the guidance of the Holy Spirit within you so is is that sort of the rationale between Old Testament and New Testament of the of Christians today and the, and the Jews back then in light of how they conducted themselves you said an awful lot there Fred and I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to sorted out. I mean, I think I'm understanding what you say, are saying, so I'll say yes. That's good. <laughs> In other words, I mean, you, were, you went through a lot of different connections there, but I, I think basically the way you said it, I, I, would, I would agree yes. Um, because the, the, one of the major differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Holy Spirit. That is a major difference. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit isn't active in the Old. We've got zillions of examples of that. But the difference is the, the Holy Spirit is the sign of the New Covenant, and unlike the Old, he indwells in the New and has a major, a major set of responsibilities that he carries out for the New Covenant believer. He indwells us, he guides us, he teaches us, he is grieved by our sin. I mean, just honored are just a host of passages that talk about the Spirit's role in our lives, this side of the cross. And I think that's one of the reasons why the author, and we read that earlier in verse 329, that when the Spirit Spirit sees a believer despising God's word and deliberately sinning, it outrages him. It grieves him. It hurts him. And it's one of the reasons, among others, why God then does discipline. That's coming up in chapter 12. The important role of God's disciplinary work in the life of the believer. So if we can tie this together then, before we look at verse 32, this would be the proposition. As God disciplined Israel for their defiant sin, God will discipline the believer for his or her defiance. Now, there's a difference 
between the covenantal relationships, but the, the consistent theme is God disciplines those whom he loves. That's coming up in chapter 12. Why does God discipline? It proves we're his child, it proves he loves us, and it is to change us and transform us from the inside out. That's what he's going to argue at the beginning of chapter 12. But he's not there yet. He wants to talk about faith in that interim between chapter 10 and chapter 12, which is the great chapter in faith. It's all part of the sanctification. It is. It is. Mm -hmm. And he even used that word in the middle of verse 29 by which he was sanctified. Fred. So, just for my clarification, in, in verse 29, blood of the covenant, is that the new covenant? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Question, Pastor. The Jews <clears throat> that are failing to recognize the cross, is this is it defiance? Is it sin? What is it they're living Both. <laughs> how does God perceive it? Well, um, that's a great question. It is, it is a defiant, willful rejection, and obviously it is therefore sin. It's an egregious sin. Um, my, one of my favorite passages that helps to answer your question, it's near the end of Jesus' public ministry. He's in Jerusalem, and he cries. I mean, he, the text says he cries. He weeps. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's kind of a metaphor for all of Israel, but you know, he's in Jerusalem. How I wanted to gather you, like a mom, a mother hen gathers her chicks, that's kind of what he's saying there. But you were unwilling. You were unwilling. That's what Jesus says. And so you have this tragic grieving by God, in this case the God-man Jesus, over Israel's rejection of him. And so that's why... Well, that, that word that fits quite clearly in this New Testament is that word rejection. They have rejected Jesus as their Messiah in all of his work. They've rejected it. And um, that, that's very serious, but remember, God has a covenant relationship with them, so he doesn't give up on them. And that's why Romans 11 is such an important chapter because and, and God says this in the Old Testament um, too, but He He will bring them back to the land, and He will redeem them. And in eleven twenty six of Romans, all Jews who are alive when Jesus comes back will come to faith in Him. They will believe Him. Zechariah puts it this way: They will look upon Him whom they despised and believe. <coughs> That's what Zechariah says. So it is. Primary thing in here here the rejection of Christ in this word, or as it was Fred kind of pointed out, it's walking away from his moral law. Well, it's it, it, it's not rejection of Jesus. These he's he's writing to people who Jewish people who have put their faith in Christ, but they're trying to figure all this out and they're trying to to work it through. And uh, he says, you, 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 some of you are drifting from the word, you're doubting the word, you're dull to the word, and now you're despising the word. Some, not all. And he's saying, this is serious business, don't do that. And that's why he's going to start to develop this important reminding, really, 
of this important element of faith. You have trusted the Lord. You have, in the words he uses earlier, you've received the knowledge of truth, but you are, some of you are sinning deliberately. So, Jim, it's, it's not a matter of their state of salvation. It's a matter of how are they living their lives in light of their decision of salvation. It's very difficult for them to work through all of this. And there's an element of them that are being deliberate and being defiant. And God, what's God going to do about that? He's going to deal with them. But out of loving discipline. So, you follow me? I'm following you. Yeah, I'm oh, did, did you follow up? Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, the preacher of the Bible, I read it through Job the other night, it's in the 22nd chapter, and he talks about what a terrifying thing it is to have to face an angry God. Mm. I think about that as I read this, and what a terrifying thing it is to face his discipline. Exactly. And that is exactly what he says in verse 31. That, that's exactly right. And it's, um, it's hard to preach this in the 21st century. It's hard to preach about the discipline of God for the believer in the 21st century. Because the idea of sin and the idea of our ongoing struggle with sin, even if we put our faith in Christ, is a reality and it has to be faced. It has to be dealt with. And that's, that's not a comfortable thing to do in a lot of churches today. They don't want to hear that kind of message. They like the idea of salvation. Okay, I've got, this is a horrible way to put it, it's terribly cynical. I've got fire insurance. Now, I'm, now it's settled for the rest of my life. It's a horrible way to put it, isn't it? But in, instead of stressing and emphasizing the holiness of God, and the grace of God, now, that should, that should cause you to want to live differently because of what he's done for you. And the transformation process is what, in many people's lives, is gradually what happens. They begin to face the sin, the habits and patterns of sin, and God graciously and lovingly brings them along. These are believers who are struggling with that. But he's reminding them in verse 32, but he's reminding them, this is what you used to do. Now go back to this. This used to character, now go back to this. I saw another hand yeah. somewhere. Can I, I, real quick, can you, you, you had three purposes for discipline. I just wasn't typing that fast. You had three purposes for discipline. Yes, uh, we'll see that in chapter 12. It confirms that we're his child. It confirms that he loves us. And it is the method he uses to transform us. And we'll see that in Hebrews uh, chapter 12. I, no, yeah, no, that's fine. Absolutely. Uh, I picked up on something you said earlier. That, you know, the, the sin that these followers are engaging in is not a rejection of Christ. It is a rejection of the word. And, and the comments you just made, because I kind of want to get some on mine, because I, I think some, I, I've heard the theory by some conservative Christians that if you, and, and there's a Bible verse that I think you've quoted, if, you know, if, if you reject who Jesus is, um, if you don't understand who he really is, and I'm not saying 
necessarily your objective is defender, you know, but but I, I want to understand more. You know, it'll be the when you get to the pearly gates and your you can you know you say Lord, Lord. So not really rejecting him, but can they be rejecting him by their rejection of the word? This implies that they're not, like you said, their their salvation is not in trouble, but they are going to be disciplined. And I do think of our churches today that many of whom have rejected the word as written. And it is a huge problem because who do people look to for guidance in their in their Christian lives? They look to the church, and the church is not preaching the word of God. That's right. There's real problems. Right, very serious. I do want to make one quick corrective comment. You were alluding to Matthew 7, and in that particular passage, Jesus is talking about people, more than likely the Pharisees, because that's more the context, but people who said they professed faith, but they really never didn't. They never did. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I never gnoscoed you. I never had a personal, intimate relationship with you. You've never put your faith in me. That's not a very serious thing, but ever, I just want to make that one corrective. Because in this, in, in the case here, and this is what's hard, but you've got to keep this always in the forefront of your mind. He is writing to Jewish believers in the 60s, a few years after Jesus went back to the Father. They're struggling with all that Judaism meant and all of the Old Testament, everything it meant to be a Jew, and now how all of that is done and now they're trying to understand what the new covenant means to them. And, in, and there is that ongoing struggle then with sin. But there's also the ongoing struggle, and that's what I tried to do with this. How are you responding to the word of God, which is your light? It's a lamp unto your feet. I'm using language from Psalms. And this is the key for you. It isn't just your Judaism, and now I understand it's fulfilled and all of that. But now your whole life is being transformed. And the agent of that transformation, the Holy Spirit of God, the sign of the new covenant, who uses his word. And so your attitude and your devotion to God's word is the most important thing for you right now. And if you take it lightly and you drift from it and you doubt it and you're dull to it and you despise it, one thing I guarantee you the author is saying, as God disciplined his covenant people Israel, he will discipline you, his new covenant people in the church. It's, that's the analogy he's drawing. And that's the lesson he wants them to learn. And in my judgment, that is a lesson for the 21st century evangelical church in North America. Don't take God's word lightly. Don't treat it as just a frivolous add-on. It is the core and central issue of your life. And your other step, I'm getting real animated here, but the other thing you said is how important it is for the church to be doing this. If the local church is not teaching and preaching God's word, then the dear people who come to that church are not being fed, and they're not growing. And the leaders of those churches, when they stand before God, they're going to have a great deal to answer for. But they are not doing what God wants them to do. And uh, I mean, I, well, anyway, yeah. That, that's the thing that I, that I, I see on a personal level, because I, I, I try to, in my own mind, I guess, 
get to the dividing line. What indicates a true devotion to God? And it, and it seems to me that it's putting God first, living living your life for God rather than living your life for yourself. Okay. You to work at it a little bit, you know, like go to Bible study, mm -hmm. read the words. Make 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 a priority in your life, however it works, whether it's key devotional texts that you read every day and work and think about, going to a Bible study, those kinds of make certain that the Word of God is a prominent part of your life. Because that if, if God has revealed himself, which I, I would argue he has, in a book called the Bible, then it's really important that we understand that revelation. And the only way to understand it is to spend time in it. When I used to teach uh, Bible classes, I would put at the header of my syllabus. I may have told you this, but I used to put at the header of my syllabus, always a quote from the great uh, 19th century uh, English pastor, Charles Simeon, justification is by faith, semicolon. Knowledge of the word of God is by works. I mean, it's hard work. You can't, I mean, you're, you're seeing that going through the book of Hebrews. It's hard work. You have to think about this. And you have to always keep in mind the big picture of what the author is doing in this book. So that you don't lose sight of it. So it is. I mean, but, you know, that you guys keep coming every Wednesday over lunch is an indication that you're, this is serious to you. So as long as you keep coming, I'll keep coming too. The moment you stop coming, I'll stop and go do something else. But you keep coming, and that's fantastic. That's what I want to say. Uh, he was before me. Who, who, Joel? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's funny. I just, not to go backwards here, but, you know, verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning, I mean, I, I don't know about other guys in the room, but I certainly have deliberately sinned since coming to, you know, knowledge of the truth. That's right. So what does that mean for me, and how do I deal with that? Well, <laughs> the in one sense, the answer is... Verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that you, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And, and then he repeats from Habakkuk the importance of living by faith. Mm -hmm. So he, the answer to your question is in these verses. But Joel, it is, and this is one of the key words in the book of Hebrews too, it is perseverance, it's endurance, it's hanging in there, so to speak. And if, if deliberate, all of us struggle with this, deliberate sin, you know something is wrong, but you choose to do it nonetheless, that breaks fellowship with the Lord. That affects your relationship with the Lord. And so, you know, we've talked about this before. The answer to that is simply to say to the Lord, I'm sorry. You know this is an area of real struggle with me. Um, God will forgive you. The relationship is restored. There's nothing God holds against us. But it is important for us to deal with and desire to deal with those habits and patterns of deliberate sin, which are part of each one of our lives. If you feel sorrow for it, God's at work. If, if, you, if you feel a genuine desire, I do want to get through this, and no longer desire to do this, whatever it is. God's interested in that. And God will honor that. But it takes time. 
the patience of transformation. That's why the Lord is called so often long-suffering God. All right. Wow. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, Great question. The, the devil is after everyone in this classroom today, including you, right? <laughs> Believe me, I know that. What's your point? <laughs> <laughs> and we think, perhaps, oh, if we just cheat a little bit here in this, it's no big deal. And we're going to get some satisfaction from that because we're going our own way, not the way we know we should do. And, and so my question is, is the devil going to be tempting even I mean, students, preachers, deacons, elders, is his attack upon the church and not just keeping sinners in their little sinful cages so that he takes them all to hell? Sure. I mean, Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians 6, 10 and following. Uh, spiritual warfare. We war not against flesh and blood. We war against powers, principalities, dominions, authorities in the heavenly places. And uh, that reality uh, of spiritual warfare, he uses the metaphor of the darts of the devil, the arrows of the devil that he shoots at us daily. Uh, temptation is real, but the answer to that, or I maybe should put the the plan for that is put on the armor of God each day. And that is, uh, I'm doing a series on angels in my church, and this coming Sunday, I'm going to do, I'm going to deal with the strategy that the believer has to deal with the wiles of the, wiles of the devil. And one is understanding the important role of the church, and two, understanding your position in Christ. And that's what the whole armor of God is about, it's your position. Who am I? You're living righteously. You're living, I mean, he, he, he's, he's chained to a Roman soldier because it's one of the prison epistles. And he, so the Holy Spirit must have used that. Paul, look, look, at that, look at that Roman soldier. That's a great example of the believer. The breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth. That's who you are. Now live it. And it's a conscious, and, and it, the, the language is present continuous, it's, it's a conscious, daily reminder of who am I in Christ. And if you have a conscious, deep-seated conviction of who you are in Christ and, and, and are serious about that, devil will not be successful with you. It will not happen. Well, I shouldn't say it won't happen, but it, it's, you, will, you will be able to stand. That's the language he uses. Stand. You will, be not, you will not be knocked off your feet. You will stand. Those hobnail Roman soldiers' boots, you dig them deep into the ground and stand because of who you are in Christ. Amen. Would it be all right if I... No, it wouldn't be all right. All right, Daniel. <laughs> uh, verse 27, um, when he's talking about Old Testament language. So when he says uh, fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire, he's just kind of... Uh, analogy of Old Testament, that's how God deal with people in the Old Testament, but in the New well, Testament it's going to be something different like this. Well, those, those, those examples, so to speak, in, in that verse uh, 20, what is that verse, 20, 27, those, those kinds of things 
fearful expectation of judgment, fury of fire. That you can think of examples in the Old Testament where that's exactly what happened. That's God acting and dealing with sin in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Lord will judge his people. Vengeance is mine, verse 30. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So, I mean, he's just, as it was in the old, so it is in the new. Circumstances, specifics may be different, but it's still there. God deals with deliberate sin among his covenant people, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. So he wants them to draw that conclusion. Now the difference is you're standing, the Holy Spirit, and so on, but the principle is the same. It doesn't have to do anything with like the judgment sin of Christ or anything like that. No, not not no, not 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 in this context. Is that judgment the white judgment? That is for unbelievers. Believers will not be at the great white throne judgment. They will not be there. That is not for believers. That's correct. That's correct. All throughout history. That's correct. In the language in Revelation 20, the books are open. <laughs> and God, I mean, it's an amazing thing to try to envision, but thankfully we're not a part of that. May I move to verse 32 now? Sure. <laughs> Now, again, here, this helps to remind us that he's talking about believers. But recall the former days when you were enlightened and endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to repulsion and fiction, sometimes being partners to, with those who were treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plumbing of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. So he's reminding them who they are, what their life used to be like, what they were doing. Go back to that. Stop deliberate defiance of the word of God. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And so there, there's a principle that is throughout the Bible. It's quite central to the New Testament. Verse 36. The, the future promises of God should affect the present behavior of the believer. Now I'm going to repeat that. The point of verse 36 is the future promises of God should affect the present behavior of the believer. Let's see that for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. God has made a lot of promises to you. Endure, perseverance. I used that word in response to Joel's question. Endurance, perseverance. Hang in there. Your, the promises God has made to you should affect how you live today. Now, I know I have told you this. I know I have. My mother, who, who died in April, but my mom, when I was a little boy, I was pretty much of a rascal. She used to say to me, Jimmy, do you want to be doing that when God comes back, when Jesus comes back for you? I mean, you know, mom was being very manipulative there, very controlling. I'm kidding. She, she, she was espousing a very important biblical truth. But she was trying to get me to stop doing what I was doing. But she was saying something that's very biblical. Jesus says in Matthew 25, you don't know when I'm coming back. 
So be ready and be faithful. Amen. That's the point of chapter 25 of the book of Matthew. You don't know when I'm coming back. But I am coming back. I promise you that. So be ready and be faithful. So what my mom was saying to me is true. And that's what the author is saying. Endure. Persevere. Stop your deliberate despising of the word of God. That's the key to your life. And then he reminds them, and he, he goes back, it's almost obscure, he goes back to this minor prophet, Habakkuk, you know, where you had your morning devotions this morning, where you spent a lot of time in Habakkuk. It's a somewhat of an obscure, but he grabs this verse out. In a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. How do the righteous people live? They live by faith. They live by faith. And that is why he's going to start talking about faith in chapter 12. The key to perseverance, the key to endurance is faith. Believing what God has said. Not what Oprah said or Ellen says or or Dr. Oz says, or any of those other people on television that for some reason people watch and try to use as guides for their life. It is the word of God. And, and the author is saying, believe what God has said. Trust him. Have confidence in him. Because my righteous people live by faith. In the Old Testament that was true. In the New Testament that's true. The just... The righteous live by faith. Faith is believing, not always seeing. We walk by faith, not by sight. I'm using verses that are peppered throughout the Bible. <clears throat> but we are not, verse 39, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The point of the exhortation, we don't shrink back. We're people of faith. We're people of faith. We don't drift from God's word. We don't doubt God's word. We're not dulled by his word. We don't despise his word. We embrace it. We live by faith. Jim, in embracing it, too, we... Can you give us a perspective on that? We grow stronger. We grow more zealous. We grow more confident in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and the guidance that he will provide us as we take each step in our life. It's not a, we're on tenuous ground. We're on solid ground. And he will build that confidence in us spiritually Absolutely. and encourage us Absolutely. as we take another step, another step Absolutely. in his will. It's not like we're on the precipice of ready to fall off uh, into an abysmal no. lack of faith at no. all. No. But rather, we are being built to be strong and share what we have, what we've experienced so that he may be glorified and others might find him. Yeah. And, and that's the positive side of it. I mean, something along that line, I mean, how would you... No, I, I mean, I, you said, well, absolutely, the, the positive. We're not, 
on the tip of a precipice ready to teeter over and fall over. We're on solid ground. Our faith, our confidence, our trust is on the solid ground. Like Jesus said, you're building your life on a rock. You know, who's the wise man? The one who builds his house on a rock, not on sand like the foolish man is. I'm just using another illustration in the words of the Lord. That, I mean, it's absolutely true. And that, again, is what the whole armor of God is all about. Have a clear understanding of who you are. Live it. And if you, if you don't understand that, if you don't understand what he's doing in the whole armor of God, which is focusing on the position and security and identity of the believer, you miss the whole point. Okay, chapter 11. I, I have so much I want to try to say about this. Now, you saw in verse 39 and you saw in verse 38, you saw the word faith. Faith is the key to perseverance. Faith is the key to endurance. Circumstances aren't. You follow me? If you are living, if you are living your life as a circumstance-controlled person, now I'm trying to be real careful you're getting this, you will continually experience defeat. Defeat. If, if you, I forget how I said it, if you are a circumstance-controlled person, you're allowing the circumstances of your life to control you. You will continually experience defeat. And I don't, I don't mean loss of sight. That's not what I mean. It's just because I, I think you know this. Life is hard. I mean, did you notice that? It's hard. Life is not easy. Our lives, our li you literally could say our lives are like this. This is life. I mean, it really is. And you're hammered and bombarded. But if your focus is, and your, your focus is just circumstance, I respond to the circumstances. Instead of, and it's so easy to say this in an air-conditioned room in a miserably hot day, and we're comfortable in this room, but the reality, that is the reality of life. It's hard, it's difficult, but... To instead of being a circumstance controlled, be a spirit controlled person. It enables you to rather consistently live, not like this, but rather consistently live like this. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm, I'm making it almost maybe too simplistic, but the key is do, this is what my wife says this constantly, do I really trust God? Or am I saying, I'm sorry, God, I know you can't handle this one. I'll take it from here. And we really don't mean that, do we? <laughs> because to say to God, you can't handle this one, I'll take it, is about the stupidest thing you could possibly say in life. But how many people, I do that too. There are just times when we, in effect, are saying, God, this one's too big even for you. 
Peggy just constantly said, we walk by faith. We walk by faith. We walk by faith. And so the author in chapter 11, verse 1, gives us a definition of faith. And I want to take this apart and put it back together again. Now, faith, now, it depends on your translation. You may, the, your translation may have a little bit of a different word. The thought is the same. There may be one or two different nuances here. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Two key words. Now, I read from the ESV translation. I don't know all of the different translations there are around the tables here. But the two key words are assurance and conviction. An assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not imagination. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is a deep-seated confidence in God and believing what he has said. Faith is a deep-seated conviction, confidence in God. It's a, I'm saying it different ways. It's a deep-seated trust in God and believing what he said. I shouldn't make it past tense. Believing what he says. It's permanent. It's living. And it makes hope in our lives. It makes it come alive. It is it is the supreme trust and confidence in God. It is the supreme trust and confidence in God that he will keep his promises to me. So an assurance of things hoped for. Is Jesus coming back for you? Yes. yes. An assurance of things hoped for. That's faith. It isn't a wish. It's faith. I believe he's coming back for me. And a con conviction of things not seen. Can you see God? No. Can you see him face to face? No. But do you believe that he is? Do you believe he's living? Do you believe he's powerful? Do you believe he sent his son to die for you on the cross and was resurrected the third day? Do you believe those things? Yes. It's a conviction. So again, the... It, it's a supreme confidence and trust in God. Believing what he says to you. It's not a wish. That's not faith. That's right. And you can see why that is important for these people who are, how are they responding? Not all of them, but how, how, some of them are drifting from the word. That's stupid. I'm getting real animated. But if this is God's word, and it's the key to developing faith, 
Why in the world would you drift away from God's word? Why would you doubt it? Why would you begin to allow yourself to be dull and insensitive to it? And why would you begin to despise it just because it's hard and it has difficult truths in it? Because if that characterizes you, you are not rooting and anchoring your life in faith. You're rooting and anchoring it in something else. And because you are his child and he loves you, he's going to bring you back. He's going to discipline you. To the point where, and that's what he said in verse 32 through 39, where again, you're, you're back to that point of persevering, enduring, and trusting, and believing in God. Even though you can't understand everything that's happening in all of its detail. There's only one being in the universe knows what tomorrow's going to be like. And it's not you. Amen. It's God. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So, uh, I said I said same thing about five different ways. And that may have was confusing to you, but... Let's make sure there aren't any questions about what is faith. The two key words the author is using here is assurance and conviction. An assurance of things hoped for. Will God keep his promises to me? Yes, I have an assurance he will. Absolutely. And a conviction of things not seen. Faith walks not by sight. It doesn't. You, you, you can't see everything. You can't understand everything. And somebody, I forget who it was, somebody quoted Job. And when you, when you study Job, you see that. He, he could not understand why what was happening to him was happening. He just he couldn't get it. And understandably, he couldn't. He didn't have the perspective. And so finally, at the end, he starts hurls a bunch of accusations and questions at God. And then in Job 38, God answers and says, Sit down, Job. Where were you when I created the universe? Where were you? And he just goes verse after verse. And you can just imagine, here's Job sitting, and he's just thinking, that's right, that's right. Who am I? Job speaking, who am I? To question God. Jim, and to doubt those, God. Shouldn't we have those conversations when we, when we feel like that? Um, just to be honest with, with God so we can have an honest dialogue with Him? Yes. Because I think all yes. of us probably have come to a junction in our life where we do wonder, where are you? Do you care? You know, that's great. A question and a great comment as well. Uh, but I, I, I think if I, could, if I could put it in one word, it's trust. 
I do trust God. And that, that has so many different, so many inferences you can draw from that. But I trust him. I, I you know, and I, I wish I could tell you 100% of the dime, 24-7, that I always characterize with my life. All I know is I, I have a greater capacity to trust him now than I did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Well, I, the main reason, that's a great question too, but the main reason is I've seen, I've seen the evidence in my own personal life and the life of my family and so on, the evidence of, of, of why it's important to trust God. The evidence is there. Not only in his word, which teaches me that by example. That's, what, that's why he's going to say, now I want to show you dozens of people who trusted him even when they didn't have necessarily a reason to trust him. I mean tactile, tangible evidence that they get a hold of at that moment. Because God said, I'm going to do this. Okay? Do you trust me? Uh, yes. And my, it's Abraham. You know, all three promises God made to Abraham, he never saw them fulfilled. He never lived to see. Did Abraham live to see that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky? And the sand of the sky? He never lived to see that. He lived to see his son Isaac. Uh, did he live to see, I'm going to give your descendants land? He never saw that. Did he live to see, in you all the nations will be blessed? He never saw that. But did he trust in God? Amen. Yes. He did. And he walked by faith. He's, he is sometimes called the father of faith, the father of those who believe. He had absolutely, I mean, that's why it's incredible to study the life of Abraham, because just from a human perspective, you would keep saying, why does he keep trusting him? <laughs> because he, why does he keep trusting him? Because it's just event after event, development after development, it doesn't seem like all the things God promised him the author's going to deal with that. He's going to help us to understand why Abraham and his wife Sarah were such extraordinary people. Because they really did trust in what God, who he is, his person, and what he said. But I think it's, a, too, Jim, I like, I like the word confidence, too. Trust. If I get one single word, it would be trust. But also confidence in God. All right. Now, I know you won't do this, but here's your assignment for next week. In your own words, write a definition of faith. What is your definition of faith for you? And then what you're going to do is you're going to put that, you're going to put that on the screensaver of your computer or the screensaver of your phone, and that's what you're going to say. I'm a man of faith. Here's my definition. Maybe one of you will do that. But it's just, write your own definition of faith. What does it mean to me to be a man of faith? Because Jim was asking me that question. I just answered it. Trust and confidence, I would add. But it, I mean, it's more than that. But just, I want you to be thinking about, you're a man of faith. I'm assuming every one of you in this room has put your faith in Christ. You're a Christ follower. You're you know, in his family. 
Okay, what does it mean to be a man of faith? What, what does that mean? How do you define faith? Because if, it, we'll read this later on in the, in the book of Hebrews. It says it is impossible to please God without faith. That's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? It is impossible to please God without faith. Let me ask you this question. I still have 35 seconds. If you were to ask, if you were to follow Jesus' public ministry, there's three years that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You would ask this question. What was the primary objective that Jesus had for those 12 disciples? What was the most important thing he wanted to teach them? About end times timeline? Put together a timeline of scripture from Adam to, you know, not, those things, not that those things aren't important. It was faith. How many times did he say to those men, O ye of little faith? You know, it's just, it, it, I was just listening to R.C. Sproul the other day when I was driving somewhere, and Sproul was in, in Luke 5. And uh, he was talking about that a situation where the fishermen, it's Peter and Andrew and James and John, they, they had the fishing business there in Capernaum. And they've been out fishing all night, because typically you fish in the Sea of Galilee at night, still do that today. And they came back, they didn't get one fish, not one. And so Jesus, who's teaching on the seashore there at Capernaum, says to the guys, throw your, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Now just think about that. They've been fishing all night, didn't catch anything. They're in relatively shallow water. And Jesus says, throw your net on the other side of your, of your boat. And they do it. And every fish in the Sea of Galilee jumps in that net. <laughs> it's so heavy, they can't, get, you know, they can't even get it. And it's really interesting. Do you know Peter's response? Depart from me, for I'm a sinner. Because there was only one explanation for what had just happened. It was a supernatural power of Jesus Christ. That's the only explanation. And, why, and Jesus will say this a little later. Why do you think I did that? What, what am I trying to teach you? That it's worthwhile to trust me. Worthwhile to put your confidence in me. And then, you know, there's just so many things that happen. It, 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 you just think, why is it taking these guys so long to trust Jesus? Well, because they're just like you and me. <laughs> we would be exactly the same way. But you and I are men of faith. What does that mean? So that's your assignment. I don't, don't hand it in. That's your own assignment. Just, just work through that if you I, I really would... I used to tell my the guys that I would uh, mentor at Grace and so on. I always had a group I was working with. I would ask them to write a mission statement for their life. And that was always a funny thing for them to try to work through. And sometimes the guys would come back with seven paragraphs. No, no, that's not. You know, I want you know a phrase or something like that. And what I was sort of getting at. For, for them, because the mission statement is in broad and general, it's not real specific uh, necessarily, but it, it was to get them to think about something like this. I want to be a man of faith. 
Now that maybe is almost silly, but something like that. Faith should be a part of your mission. I want to grow in my faith and trust in God. I want to grow in my confidence and trust in God. I want to believe what he said. Because I'll never be all he wants me to be if I don't trust him. All right, I guess I better quit. Tomorrow we're going to move into verse 2. And we're just going to start to unfold it just verse after verse after verse after verse of what it means to be someone who has confidence and trust in God. Assurance and conviction. Lord, thank you for the the fact and the truth that you are a holy God and you desire of us to be men and women. In this case, it's all men, but who walk with you, who walk with you in loving obedience. We do not desire to drift from your word to doubt your word to become dull to your word or even as we just quickly reviewed to despise your word what what a reprehensible characteristic that is of, of a believer's life we should be so in love with you and so in love with your word that we desire to bring our lives into conformity with it to walk with you in loving obedience not defiance not to despise your word, but to love you and love your word. It's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. The living word of God is, is the key to how, we are to how we are to walk with you and to live our lives. But to do that, we have to trust you. Perseverance is dependent on faith. Endurance is dependent on faith. Help us to grow, Lord. It takes our lifetime for this but to not be men who are controlled by our circumstances, but controlled by you, by your spirit who dwells us. That takes time. None of us ever reaches that 100%. That's heaven. But now you're conforming and transforming us. You're working in our lives. You're using your word to bring conviction. You're using your word to help us to see this is what you're like and this is what you want us to be like. So thank you for these men. Please bless them. Please energize them. Please give them the kind of uh, courage and confidence and trust in you that they will be men who will make a difference for you in this world that so desperately needs to hear about Christ. So when we represent you well, we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.